welcome to the Borealis Experience. I'm your host, Aurora, and I'm very excited to be sharing my first interview with John Esteen. John Esteen was sentenced to 150 years of jail time, and he shares his story. He shares how in a tremendously hopeless situation, he was able to fight for himself. He was able to see the light and to focus on the vision he has, namely to be reunited with his family and to live life in freedom. I find it very important to say that the Borealis Experience podcast is not only about inspiring talks and meditations, it is also inviting people from all walks of life to talk with me and to share their story, to inspire other people, to help them grow, to help them make the changes they want to see in their life and to relate, to make you guys and girls out there feel less alone. So feel inspired now, lean back and enjoy this wonderful conversation I had with John Esteen this morning. Take good care of yourself. Bye. Okay. I'm John Esteen. I'm from Louisiana. I, was, I served for 20 years on a 150-year sentence on a nonviolent drug offense. I was on NBC Dateline covering my story. It was an amazing story, and i like to share with others and hope to um, help somebody else in their life. Maybe encourage them, inspire them to do something positive in life. Let them know that when you never give up, you can achieve your purpose in life. Also, I'm president and founder of END Second Win, nonprofit organization. And I'm very proud of it. And the purpose of that is to help those coming home, men and women, to take the burden from them of the normal things that we have to accomplish when we come out that normal people or citizens would do like getting a license, uh, transportation, mental health services, education, and things of the like. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope to, in doing that, I hope to lower the recidivism rate because people that come home from prison within two to five years span, they find themselves back in prison. And we want to curtail that. Mm -hmm. So that's the purpose of not probabilization. Yes, ma'am. That is so, so beautiful. Thank you, John. Yeah. Um, like, would you say that when you come out of prison, that like there's a lot of talk about PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder, that people, like all of them suffer from the stress that happens in the prison and to get back into life, to get back to their families, sounds very beautiful and romantic and it's <laughs> awesome, but it's also very scary and can bring up a lot of, um, I don't know, is it anger? Is it sadness? Is it depression? Um, how was it for you when you got out? Like it was a huge fight, like legal fight to get you out um, on time uh, to, for you to not be serving over a hundred years. Um, but the day you found out that you, um, get out again, how, how was it for you? Were you scared, um, nervous, or just excited? 
I had mixed. It was, uh, I guess, both. Mm-hmm. Excited and had a little fear. Yeah. Excited to be home with my family after so many years, hearing them having uh, holidays at the house I can't be a part of. I always longed to have that and dreamt about being, um, participate in that. And now I'm having this opportunity mm-hmm. when I was coming home. So I was excited about that. Yeah. The fear thing is it's dealing with the post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Then you would you you experience a lot of things in prison. Also, you're in a controlled environment for so many years. So yeah. you depend on you find yourself dependent on the system to yeah. a certain extent yeah. of your life. You they control you when you wake up, you go to bed, yeah, eat, and the like things of the like. Every moment of your life is pretty much controlled. Mm-hmm. And you have a sense of freedom in Angola because it's like a city of its own. But at the same time, you'll find out that you are in a controlled environment when you do they lock you up, put you in a dungeon and things like that. And reality really sets in. So you're really not really, you're really not free, even though it might feel as though the environment might feel like you're free, but actuality you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fear when you're coming home, the things that you were accustomed, accustomed to doing in prison, mm-hmm. that these habits that you had developed, you find yourself still, still doing these things when you're home. Yeah, yeah. Like certain you use. Like I go to the hospital, if I go to an appointment, instead of me saying appointment, I would say call out. So I had to get over that. It took me a while to get over the saying I have a call out and people looking at me, call out? Yeah. It's a call out. I say, yeah. oh, excuse me. I mean, appointment. Yeah. You see, you know, I mean, st- things, small things like that. You mm-hmm. know, you, you realize that it's been ingrained, you've been institutionalized. Yeah. And not knowing it. So that's the psychological thing about it. You know, you you find yourself doing things, not really noticing that yeah. you're doing it until somebody pointed out to you. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And while you were um serving, you say serving. <laughs> um yeah, serving. did you did you were you a spiritual person before already? And it helped you through, or did you have a moment um, in jail where you started praying or started having like mental practices to to not go crazy, to stay sane? Um, did you grow up in a in a religious, in a spiritual family, or did you learn over time to? Because you come across as a very very grounded, like sweet soul person. Um, well. Um, you don't surprise me by saying that a lot of people, even in prison, security guards and inmates alike, will always tell me you don't belong here, man. You you different. You know, you see, you know, they see the light in you, man. You don't, I don't know what you're doing here. So I hear that a lot. And I did grow up in a beautiful uh, household, a, a Catholic household, grew up um, Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. went to Catholic schools. Uh, I went uh, all the way up to my 10th grade year. My junior, senior went to public school by choice. Mm-hmm. And I wound up going to um, Nickel State University to play football. Uh, by switching schools, I kind of like lost the uh, educational platform pretty much as saying, I mean by that is that I didn't have the uh, college preparatory courses that get a full scholarship to uh, college. 
So mm-hmm. that led me to make another bad decision in my life, which I call bad decision, is to join the National Guard to offset the cost to go to college. I got a partial scholarship for football and I needed something else to pay for the rest. So I say, well, I'm going to National Guard. It sounds good. And mm-hmm. they pay the rest, which it worked. It worked for the, for the most part. Yeah. But I didn't know that I'd be deployed to go to war while in college. So that kind of backfired on me. Yeah. Said yeah. That derailed my dream to being playing in the football league once mm-hmm. in one, one day, you know. So I always, I still think about it. If I wouldn't have went to the war, would I, would I made it to the NFL? So I still go through my mind. Yeah. 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 So feelings of, yeah. regret and and yeah maybe yes. anger towards yourself and where were you sent to war said it again ask that again ma'am where were you sent to war sir oh i was in i was in uh i was sent to the, uh saudi arabia Dahran. okay in 1991 i got there would just turn 91 yeah. wow so and it was it was it was the war war was pretty quick at the same time mm-hmm. and when we were being bombed and we had to sit in these annex courts with no windows can't see what's going on so you don't know if the bomb is going to hit you or not but all you hear is sirens going off and we had to put your chemical suit on because they didn't wasn't sure if they had chemicals in the warheads that was being um, blown up exploding they're sending towards our way mm. And that alone, I got tired. I got to the point where I just like say, forget about it. They ain't doing all this time. They had no chemicals, and why would they have it now? And I stopped putting my chemical suit on. But that was short lived because the guys that was in the annex caught with me, mm-hmm. they kind of came together and talked to me. Said, "Man, put your chemical suit on, man. We think we should put that on." Persuaded me to put my chemical suit back on, mm-hmm. and um. But at that point, I felt like that was a turning point in my mental factors at that moment because I didn't care no more. It just didn't because I always, I always was thinking of my family. If something happened to me here, you know, how's my 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 future wife doing? My son, my mom and dad, people that love me, always went to my mind. I always contact them, not knowing if I'm gonna go home again. Yeah. So I got tired of that, you know. So I just I just cut everything off at that moment, right there. I snapped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. And for how long have you been away uh, from home then? Well, at that time, uh, it was like seven, seven and a half months of seven and a half months that I was gone. Yes, about seven and a half months I was over there. And then you came back home. I came back home. Had to be like June, July, maybe August of '91. Um, and when I came home, I, I worked for my mother. My mother, lady who owns a racetrack, Jefferson Downs and the fairgrounds. And we did like beautification there. We did mess with plants, we plant plants and, you know, you know shrubberies. And mm-hmm. so that was really my first real job that I really had. Yeah. Other than, yeah, then I became a, a teller in the race ground where I sold tickets, the racehorse tickets and stuff like that. Yeah. So I got good at that. So I started doing that when I got, when I, you know, but that was pretty cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. nice. But um, that was, um, really I was, 
kind of like and see that would let shortly after that i was i was led to my first time getting convicted going to the feds um see i had a lot of pressure on me because i really couldn't cope i really would think when pressure come on me i kind of like uh i get disturbed real bad you know yeah. i feel like i can't cope with the average with the average thing and I couldn't stand nobody uh, challenging me mm -hmm. mentally. Uh, I just, there's a lot of things I just, I couldn't, I couldn't want anybody to tell me anything. That's yeah. how I was. And especially in my own mind, if I'm thinking I'm right about anything, somebody tell me otherwise, I really kind of, it balls my blood. Mm -hmm. See, so when I got to the point where I felt that things coming like financially speaking, you know, I had the number to a friend of mine that was in a drug game. And mm -hmm. he said, whenever you need me, just call me, you know, come holler at me. But he said that because initially I, I refused him, even though he showed me all kinds of money, but I was working at the time for my mom, mm -hmm. my girlfriend, my sisters. It was like a little family thing, you know, so. Mm -hmm. But eventually I got into it. I got to the point where I, um, that started my, my uh, crime spree, you know, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. But I really believe that it all stems coming from war because I was doing a lot of stuff in Saudi Arabia that I along with me when I came back to the stateside. Mm -hmm. Like we was so they got a place called Bahrain. I'm not if you're familiar with Bahrain. Bahrain sell alcohol. You have NCO clubs. People go party and you can drink alcohol in this part of the country. Yeah, we drive there. Yeah, so I was in Saudi. I was in. Um, where it's a dry on counties, no alcohol, alcohol is illegal. Yeah. So what we do it, what we did is we started, we got the bright idea, we're young, to start smuggling alcohol across the border yeah. and make extra money. Yeah. So that started a little thing with me right there. Um and other things, you know, of the like, you know, doing things that we were supposed to be doing. And when I came home, and, and that was easy for me getting to doing things, continue doing things I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. that was selling drugs. You yeah. see, because um, yeah, because that drugs were introduced to me in Saudi Arabia. Stuff called hashish. Yeah. They were having up there, get it from Indians up there that was from India. You know, yeah. came and introduced that to to my soldier um comrades and and uh, we were smoking that. We were drinking moonshine, what we call it, rice wine. Yeah. I mean, we was doing everything in, in wartime. I mean, I was introduced to a lot of stuff that I never was introduced to in my life. Yeah, yeah. And you understand? It, so. was, it was also like you had a feeling of being a, a provider and helping people cope with the stress, right? Because alcohol mm -hmm. helps you to yes process stress and of course yes. it's not the solution but it's a short-term relief and that's what you were able to provide to those guys um right. and all along you forget oh shit this is highly illegal actually i shouldn't be doing that <laughs> you only right right you know <laughs> exactly you know we we know we was doing wrong but we didn't see that's another thing people know they do wrong but they don't know what the consequences are behind the wrong things that you do. Yeah. You see, we have, once you know the consequences, I think you'll make a, 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 a more of a rational decision to do it or not. You see, exactly. just like when I went to prison the first time, you know, I have got three and a half years and I come home. 
-hmm. And my first time, that was a lot. I was expecting probation. So that blew my mind right there, mm -hmm. you see? And when I, I did my time in Pensacola, Florida, so I come home from that, it kind of straightened me out. I didn't want to go back to jail, but I wasn't changed. I wasn't a changed person. It's just I got, I got older and wiser, but yeah. I was still that same person that made those bad decisions prior to going to jail. Yeah. You know, I just want you to understand where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And so it was for somebody to come along us that's doing something illegal to make some extra money for me to go back into that trap and that's what happened on the second charge yeah okay and as i got into it i'm not i'm not thinking about the consequences i know jail is a consequence but not that much time not that much jail time 150 mm -hmm. years i never phantom that from in my wildest dreams no, I didn't know years for not even hurting anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so what they did is uh, by me being a second offender, they couldn't give me life. So they gave me four counts and they ran them consecutive, each separately from one another. So giving the most time possible. So they yeah. set example with me. And what another thing I was angry about is that you send me all this time, not taking consideration that I fought for my country. The things I did good and like what I was doing, what I was into prior to all this, like playing football, trying to provide for my family, had a little son. None of these things were taken into consideration in mm -hmm. my sentencing. Mm -hmm. If they did, would you have gave me 150 years flat? You run my time consecutive or you ran it together? Give me a break that, you know, that you could done that because it still fits the um, sentencing guideline. Mm -hmm. But you threw the book at me. You know, and um, that that kind of still angers me too to think about my country will allow something like this to happen. Yeah, yeah. And just mm -hmm. to give us a quick idea, so you ended up mm -hmm. having to serve 20 years out of the 100 20 years, seven months. Yeah, 20 years, seven months, man. And that's because I fought. That's because I fought. Yeah. If I would just lay down, um, the laws change. I had parole eligibility. But mm -hmm. it's not guaranteed. Yeah. You got people, you know, you, I can do, I can still be in prison right now, waiting on another time, term uh, for parole eligibility to go on the board. I have friends in there still that has parole eligibility because they're juveniles and got denied and they had to wait another two years. And then you got to wait another five years if you got denied again. It, it's, it just, it's an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. So you're not promised to get out. And how so was I it? took it on my own. Sorry. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't want so to. So that's why I took it on. Yeah. Okay, no problem. No, that's why I took it upon my, myself to fight. Even though I had parole, I'm still fighting to get resentenced. Yeah. Because my sentence was illegal. And the court and the uh, system was saying that I had to go on a parole, part and parole board. And I was telling the system that how do I have to go on a part and parole board to ask for a favor when my sentence is illegal and it should be due me. Mm -hmm. I should earn that. Instead mm -hmm. of asking for a favor. So part parole board, you just ask for a favor. So I'm asking them to re to resentence me to give me my right sentence. That's mm -hmm. all I was asking. They were refusing that. And I fought and I fought and I fought until my case 
became the Esteen case. Now it's a big old case, landmark case now. And many people went home on my case before I even went home. So I was still fighting with people going home on using my case. Yes. Uh, but that's, yes, that's okay. That's okay to help others mm-hmm. is the... That's right. I love it. I, I was loving it. You know, I just had yeah. to fight a little longer. <laughs> yes. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so the day, the day you found out that you got 150 years to serve, when, when mm-hmm. were you mentally okay to start a fight? Mm-hmm. Did you fight from the first day? Like you didn't accept it from the first day? Or did you first go through a couple of years, a couple of months where you were like, oh my God, like I'm done. I, I'm lost. I got nowhere to go. Um, how long did it take you to start fighting? It took me a few years, man. It took me a few years to start fighting. Uh, when I first got to Angola, Angola, like I told you earlier, it's like a city of its own. It had a lot of distractions, got sports, have everything you think of in the world, in society, you pretty much have it in prison. Mm-hmm. And so that was my distractions. I love sports. So that was my that, that was my way of since I have couldn't have drugs, alcohol, and all that. So sports provided that that comfort for me. Yes. Going while I was going through this. Good. And educate myself too. I always I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn by guys. So I got into Bible college and I got my bachelor's degree in Christian ministry. Mm-hmm. I went to Heart of Culture School in there after after Bible College, and I got a cer- certified Heart of Culture uh, certificate. Um, so I did do positive things. I became a vice president of Vets Club. I did things like that. I was always in positive things. I was a box. I was in a boxing team, football team, basketball team. You name it, I done it. Yeah. And I got to the point where, yeah. I got to the point where I still have 150 years. And know, know what know when it dawned on me is when I got in a color guard. By me being a military and a veterans club, they asked me to be in a color guard. And what we do, we do a little show at Rodeo Town, have rodeo twice a year, and we'd come and do the color guard and do the flag thing, you know, do a little show for the people. And and one and also we bury our own, the veterans. We, we bury them at the call point point lookout it's a burial ground on angola premises mm-hmm. and we got we up to point lookout three now the ground they're being the all is people dying in there it's a lot it's reality it's real um so i don't know this guy it's an older white guy that went to bury and his family never couldn't afford to get him i'm, I'm assuming but his sister and her husband was there at the funeral we got a big old hole in the ground. We we around it. We do our little ceremony, and I'm I'm watching this coffin go into the big black dog hole, and I and I felt I feel like I felt the guy's pain, and I started crying. Tears start coming out of my face, and in my in my heart and in my mind, I said, I don't want to die here. It woke me up. Mm-hmm. That started, that sparked me to fight for my life. Wow. That's when I start cutting things, you know, that was, that would hold me up from getting my freedom. I start cutting these dead branches off. 
yeah. and um started focusing on the law, talking to MA councils, trying to get information. And it just clicked one day. It's like God gave me the answer on my case. And I tried to get other inmate counsel to understand. None of them could understand what I was talking about. And I just knew I had it. And I had one inmate that that believed in me because I was so adamant and so persuasive on uh, and confident that this was gonna work for me. Mm-hmm. And we and he worked out, he worked my ribs out for me year after year after year. We stuck with the same claim. And eventually I got the reward. Wow. It took a while. Yeah. But but from that one instance where you woke up, your whole being focused Mm -hmm. just on, I want to be free and I envision what I want to see in my future. And I'm not going to let myself distracted anymore. No. I ain't messing with no women. Like like guys want me to meet their sisters or whatever. I said, no, I can't offer them nothing. Yeah. I said, they out there, I'm in here. What can I do for them? I said, I need to educate myself. I need to find my way out of here where everybody, where everything is. Mm -hmm. Then I can concentrate on that. Yeah. See, so that was my focus. Yeah. And, and like everybody tell you, and, and I did meet, I did meet um, my future wife, my last two years in incarceration. I did meet her. Um, and it was a, it was like reason being is because I finished all I had to do with my case is all I do is wait because this is my I was my second term around second time around to the Louisiana Supreme Court because I was denied there the first time there and this is my like to me it was my last hope and I've been there and I stayed in there like 17 months waiting on the decision. Oh, God. And in, the, and, and in that time, uh, a friend of mine that used to run a yard where I wasn't really close with him, but we got to develop a friendship out there because we worked out together and and uh, got to know him real well. And he stopped me one day and he said, um, he said, man, I need to talk to you about something. I said, what's up? My wife is bringing a friend. I I know you don't go visit with nobody family. I already know this. So they already know. I don't, I don't do that. You see, but I was thinking, I was sitting on my bed and I was wondering who can visit with my wife's best friend that come visit because I want to spend time with my wife. And he said, as I was laying on my bed, something told me, Lit Boosie, they call me my nickname. I grew up, that's my nickname, Lit Boosie talk to her and when he presented that to me like that I looked at him I smiled I said okay I'll go visit you know with you and I'll talk to your wife friend while you spend time with your wife I'll do that for you man. you mm-hmm. know so I went so I was really working out really finished everything anyway so I'm, it's not a date so I don't care if she's the big as a whale or ugly as I don't know what it didn't matter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know so, <laughs> so um i just went there you know with no expectations and just free you know because just i'm just doing a favor that's all i was doing you know so but what got me when i met her she she's pretty attractive young lady you know to me but i was just talking to her you know i got to met, meet her personally and uh get to know the guy's wife you know get to meet her too and 
we jailed and the visit was a long visit that day, you know, that morning, all the way to four o'clock that evening. So visit the whole time. You can buy food. You could, it's, it's like a regular visiting and like anywhere, like a day in a park, you mm -hmm. know, so that's how we treated it. And, uh, but what got me was at the end of the visit, she walked towards me while I was sitting down. I remember like she came walking and she asked me a question. She said, do you want me to come back? And I said, wow. I said, I said, I didn't know what to say, but I said, you want to come back? <laughs> and she said, she said, yeah. I said, well, yeah, you come, I want you to come back. Oh. So from that day forward, she wasn't on my visit, but she was, I was a joint visit with them on, on the guy's visit. I was just a joint, I just joined in with their visits. We got the paperwork done for that. And about a month or two later, we wound up getting her on my visitor list. And, and she came like twice a month. She drove like a, a two, a half, two hours, two and a half hours, twice a month to come see me. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, so not knowing, she know I have been 150 years. Yeah. And not knowing if I'm gonna come home and I I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure right now. I'm still in court. I'm still waiting on decision. Been a long time in court. So it's like last time I was in court, this is about the same time and I got denied. So I wasn't, I didn't know what to think. Yeah. But always, but I, but my, no, my key was I learned, I tapped into something spiritual. Mm -hmm. I tapped in something very, very, that may benefit a lot of people by, by hearing this right now. I'm going to tell you is I decided to just get up to, Two o'clock every morning on my bed while everybody's sleeping, kneel by my bed, put my hands up like that, and just praise God for who He is, not asking Him for nothing, just thanking Him in advance for what blessings He's bestowed upon me. Mm -hmm. I did that every night for about the last two years of my time in Angola. And as a result of all that, I've seen many doors opening. I've seen First, a newspaper reporter came in there and interviewed me. He worked for the Advocate newspaper here in New Orleans. He interviewed me and he put my, he took pictures of me in a law library. He was amazed about my story. Um, then after him, NBC Dateline came, did a, a documentary on Angola, not me, on Angola. And they discovered my story at, when they came to Angola. So they called me to the warden's office and to tell, telling me NBC Dateline here want to interview you. Wow, that blew me away. Big time for me. Yes. And and uh, I wound up going getting resentenced. Long story short, I wound up going get resentenced, and I went back to my judicial. I won my case in the Louisiana Supreme Court after seventeen years. I won my case. Um, I go to my district court to get resentenced. The judge is a new judge and she refused to look at my mitigating factors the last 20 years in prison. She refused even to look at me, actually. All she said is that we overbreach our boundaries, that we're here for sentencing, not here for part and parole board. Like that, she was real hard nosed and blunt. And she sentenced me to the max possible. So my 150 years turned to 100 years. So all she knocked off was 50 years off my sentence and sent me back to Angola. 
Okay. So now I'm back at Angola. Um, all I have now is hope is parole, which I really want to depend upon. So that's my, that's my, I guess, uh, it was my ace in the hole. But at the same time, I had a lot of publicity at this moment too. Mm-hmm. So either they can go for me or it's gonna go against me. Mm-hmm. And I'm praying that it go for me. <laughs> Yes. Uh, at the same time, keep in mind that I'm still praising God every morning, two o'clock in the morning, just for who he is. And that will kept me straight, kept me strong, kept me focused. Yeah. Because I know, because I was fairly convinced that if God with me, who can be against me? I yeah. kept that in my heart. Yes. And so now I'm, NBC Deadline got involved. They come in. They come in my dorm while I sleep. They, they they film me in there. They they bring me to my chapel where I work at. They film where I worked at in prison. I'm I'm, I'm like a free man already in yeah. prison. I'm walking around with these people with the wardens and everything. Yeah. yeah. This you know and um and it come to my parole hearing. I got it. Like my parole was speeded up some kind of way. Mm-hmm. Don't know how, but I was on a board. Came up quick. So everybody wanted me out of there. Yeah. The system wanted me out there. Yeah. And I'm not seeing it at the time, though. I'm still nervous. Yeah, no, I <laughs> can't understand. I'm still nervous. Mm-hmm. I'm still nervous. Um, NBC Dateline said they're going to come back and they're going to walk me to the Palm Parole Board. They're going to walk, they came to my dorm early that morning. Before I go on the parole board, they film me. They want, they want to hear my thoughts. They want to know what I'm thinking. They want to know everything about me prior to me going to that part and parole board hearing. Wow. My family up there already waiting. And the other guys up there waiting for their parole hearing. So I was the second person to go in there. Grant, no, now take note of this now. The first person was denied. Oh my God. So you know how those. I had a battle in my mind. God, yeah. I understand, but I know with me, you know. First yeah. guy was denied off the top. So he come out, he come out, family crying, he crying. I said, man. So here I go, they call me up. Go in there. I hold it open for my family, come all in and sit down and make a long story short. My son spoke for me, my mama spoke for me. They asked me a few questions. And the, the, the lawyer for the state of Louisiana was the first one to question me on the board. And he told me, he let me know that he is a lawyer and he wanted to ask me a few questions. So he asked me a few questions. And after I answered him, he said, it must be true what they say about you. He said, you fought us despite how we may have felt about you. You kept on fighting. He mm-hmm. said, therefore, I cannot deny you. And the other two guys, <laughs> other two guys spoke, they asked me a few questions and he said, we like the first guy, we can't, we can't deny you. So when, the, so when he came back to the original guy that talked to me first, the lawyer, when he mm-hmm. said, well, we grant you the parole. Man, my head hit the table crying like a baby. Yeah. Yes. That was the best feeling in my life. Oh. That I had so much weight on my shoulders. 
now yeah. has been lifted. Yeah. So beautiful. Yes. John, so we're coming to an end with, with our first meeting here. I would love to have you back. And you also mentioned that you want to bring on a okay. friend, right? Um, yes. Yes. He, he's... Um, okay. No, um, I don't know, because Zoom is going to kick us out here very soon. All right. Okay. Just that you okay. know, it's Zoom. It's not me. All right. Okay. Um, All right. Would you like to mention your podcast right at the end here? And then we set up a new date for our new conversation, maybe next week or in a couple of days. Okay. Um, cool. You cool. want to share the title of your podcast mm -hmm. that you want to kickstart? Mm -hmm. The title of my podcast I want to kickstart is Out of Bondage and Into Success. Yeah. And um, yes, this episode here will be on the Borealis Experience podcast. And yeah, we will chat very soon to talk about your friend, to bring him on and to talk more about your situation right now and your family, right? Yes. Thank awesome. you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for Welcome. being yeah, no problem. For being here. No problem. Thank my you. My pleasure. Have Thank a good you. rest of your day. You too, ma'am. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation here on the Borealis Experience podcast. Make sure to check out John Esteen on Facebook and his non-profit organization that I will be posting in the show notes here. All right. Take good care of yourself. Until next time. Aurora.